You'll make your way to Luke chapter 9. In your Bibles, Luke chapter 9. Our job as Christians is to make Jesus known to the world. If you have experienced saving faith in Jesus Christ, you have certainly realized that your responsibility is not to sit on your knowledge or to cloister yourself away in this world. Our job is to make the name and the saving power of Jesus known to sinners. Such an orientation emulates the ministry that Jesus fulfilled. This is what He did in His ministry. Such an orientation fits the message that Jesus preached. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Such an orientation honors the mission Jesus called us to fulfill. Go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28 and verse 19. It's spring. Beautiful spring day today, isn't it? And you maybe have seen or have used one of these uh, spreaders, a broadcast spreader, uh, putting fertilizer out on the lawn, or let's say that it's reseeding time here in the uh, springtime, and so you put the seed down in that little bin on two wheels, and with the uh, handle you push that through the lawn. And what does that do? It spreads the seed around as you walk doesn't spread it over the whole yard. I'm still looking for such a spreader. I'd like to spend some money on that. But um, it just, you have to walk with it. And as you take it, it spreads wherever you go, the seed. And that is something perhaps of a picture that would be applicable to those of us who know Jesus as Savior. As we walk through the world, we cannot proclaim the gospel to every soul, but wherever we walk, we spread the message. We are to be those who disseminate the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherever we go in this wide world. And I'd like us to stop for just a moment and to consider what a privilege that is. What a privileged position it is to tell others about Jesus Christ. We are called, we are chosen, and we are authorized as God's representatives to carry the message of eternal salvation to a lost world. We've been called to take the bread of life and to distribute it to starving souls. As we come to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke today, we look at the beginnings of this noble enterprise. We should understand that in chapter 9, the Galilean tour of Jesus is coming to a close. He's stationed, as you will remember, at Capernaum on Lake Galilee, and from there he has traveled from town to town and from village to village preaching the kingdom of God. He's demonstrated by performing many, mirac many mirac miraculous signs his power and his authority to carry on this mission. And he has healed many of incurable diseases. He has raised the dead, he has stilled the stormy sea, and he has exercised demons. Now, training along with Jesus are these 12 men he has chosen as his apostles, his official trainees and partners in ministry. As the Galilean tour draws to a close, the crowds get larger, but Jesus' focus narrows more and more at this point upon these 12 men. Unbeknownst to them, Jesus is preparing them to carry on his mission in his absence. 
This training takes on a new emphasis in chapter 9 where Jesus sends his 12 apostles out to proclaim the same message they have heard him proclaiming throughout Galilee. Just look at this map here as we consider that and look to the, uh, up to the north where Jesus is stationed and where he is ministering and all that we discuss here today will be taking place in this region, but it might be a good place for us to stop and to consider this Galilean tour as it comes to close in this section of Scripture. We remember some of the place names where miracles have been performed at Nain, at Nazareth where he's been rejected in his hometown, at Cana, the first miracle, Gennesaret, and here at Capernaum, the home base of his Galilean ministry. But clearly, up to the, in the northern region of Galilee, there have been places where he has pressed down through, and there are things that Luke has not mentioned that Jesus has done in other places, but the large concentration of Jesus' ministry is up in this region. Now we come today to a discussion at, or to a, an occurrence at Bethsaida, and probably somewhere out in the region beyond the town, it is in the region beyond the town, but perhaps to the east and just beyond the territory of Herod Antipas, who is the ruler of this region of Galilee, but not the ruler of Decapolis over here. And that line comes up into here, and this may be where Jesus uh, will go as we trace his steps here in Luke chapter 9. If I could look at the next map, as we just look ahead here, uh, concentrating in a little bit more narrowly, we have in this region, this is where Jesus has carried on his ministry, and we will be centered again here at Bethsaida, uh, out here on the north uh, shore of Lake Galilee, where the Jordan empties into the sea. Thank you. We're coming then to the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry as we come to chapter 9, as I've mentioned. And here it is that for the first time, Jesus sends out the twelve without him and on a very distinctive mission. Now at verses 7 through 9 of this chapter, you can note there that these verses will address popular response to the mission that the apostles are carrying out and that Jesus is carrying out in a unique way and interrupting the narrative to give us the sense of their being gone. And during that time, uh, Luke will, in the text, discuss some of the confused responses to their message. Then at verses 10 and following through verse 17, we'll be up there at Bethsaida where there is a, an occurrence there, a feeding of 5,000 that is a miraculous event, but all of this in the context of the mission being carried forward through the message of Christ's followers, them taking forward the mission and the, and the message of, of the gospel of the kingdom. So the broad theme of verses 1 through 17 is this, is making Jesus known. And we start with the commissioning of the apostles in verse 1 of this chapter. Luke 9, verse 1, When Jesus had called the twelve together, He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. We have here the mission defined. Jesus gives the disciples divine power. They are endowed with the ability to assault the demonic realm and to heal the diseased. Along with this power, you note this capacity to work miracles, Jesus also gives authority to use that power in Christ's name. Not only will they perform miracles, but verse 2, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. They were to talk to people, that is, preaching the kingdom of God. They were to talk to people, preaching the kingdom of God, to tell them 
that Jesus was Messiah, the prophesied son of David, who had come to rule Israel in righteousness. They were to broadcast the message, explaining that anyone who wanted to be on God's side needed to embrace Jesus the Messiah. It says here that they're also to heal the sick. Jesus says in verse 1 that they are to cure the diseased, or the Greek word could be translated there, heal the diseased as well. Does Luke intend, or Jesus intend here, some difference between healing the diseased and healing the sick? It's difficult to know, but if there is any difference intended, the sick, healing the sick would be less dramatic, but no less compassionate. They would, in other words, the disciples go among the people and they would, he, they would minister healing grace to the people that they met. Can you imagine where they're at right now as they're hearing this? They have been watching Jesus perform miracle after miracle throughout Galilee. And now Jesus says to them, I'm going to send you out and all you need to do is just do what you've seen me do. This would not be particularly difficult for them because they've seen the journey. They've watched the mission. They see how Jesus works and all they need to do is emulate him. One problem, of course, they don't have the power to heal and to cast out demons. But Jesus now says the authority and the power that is mine to perform these miracles and to cast out demons is yours. I give it to you and you will go into village after village and perform these same miracles and cast out demons and preach the gospel as you've heard me preach it. What excitement and fear must have combined in their hearts as they considered this message. We don't know precisely the timing and the place, but I believe that by this point they have already been to Nazareth. Remember that was out of chronological sequence in the book of Luke, and I think that they have already seen that this can be a very dangerous mission. Jesus was taken out to a hill, and they wanted to throw him off the hill to kill him. The disciples know that this could be a very dangerous mission, but there also has to be the combination of great excitement as they consider that they will be going into these villages and will be performing miracles and casting out demons. So Jesus prepares them, and now not only defining what the mission will be, but now giving some instructions as to how they will carry it out. Verse 3, he told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. No staff to aid walking on a long journey, which was typical in their culture. No bag in which to store provisions. In fact, you don't even have any provisions to store. You're not going to bring any food, and you're not going to bring any money, and you're not going to bring a change of clothes on this mission. Some scholars believe that what Jesus is doing here is seeking to distinguish the disciples from the traveling philosophers and teachers who would go throughout the land and have their big pouch on the side and collect food and collect money from their craft of teaching. That would have undoubtedly been one of the effects. But I'm more persuaded by the idea that what these instructions will do is force the disciples to move quickly and to move in dependence upon the Lord. It seems that urgency and dependency are behind these instructions. Time was short. They needed to get from village to village and to get the message out quickly. These rules of engagement will assure such a result. 
By taking no food or money, Jesus removed any temptation to linger in a town where they were not received. They needed to move on just to eat. It was time for people to choose sides. They would go into a town and find out the response. If it was negative, they would move on driven by their own stomachs. Later, Jesus will command his disciples to take provisions with them. And so again, this, would be, this indicates that this is a unique mission, a speedy mission. These rules will obviously also keep them moving when it comes to them drawing provisions from a home uh, that they would be staying in as they would not want to o- overstay their welcome. And the rules would also then obviously force them to pe- depend upon God to provide for them. Here's how that's going to work, verse 4. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. Very simple rule, but a very restrictive rule. The disciples went out in six groups of twelve, Mark tells us, and they would then enter a village and inquire as to whether anyone was open to their message and willing to, hear, to house them. Once they found hospitality, the first person that offered hospitality, they needed to go there. They weren't going to set up shop there and solicit seven different places or something and then weigh the options as to which one would be the nicer setting. Somebody's willing to take you in, go immediately to that house, set up your base of operation there, and don't go anywhere else. This would rule out any favoritism. They would not be able to move to a nicer house within the village sometime later. This rule also kept their stay in each village short. As I mentioned, they would not want to impose a financial burden on one of the homes that where they were staying, one of their hosts. But would they always be welcomed? Would they always find a home in which to be welcomed? We remember again the visit to Nazareth. We remember again that there is a growing opposition. They will not be always welcome, and so they may face some trouble. Verse 5, Jesus instructs them along these lines as well. Verse 5, if people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. Some of the stricter Jews would practice this symbolic ritual when they passed out of a Gentile territory back into Palestine. So they travel outside of Palestine into Gentile territory. When they come back, they would shake the dust off their feet saying, these people, this territory we have left, have no part in Israel and no place with God. They have rejected God for other gods and they have no place with the people of God. Using this same symbolism in Palestine would be very provocative. It would get people's attention. They would be boldly declaring, these disciples who are rejected at a village, that if you reject Jesus, the Messiah, you have no saving relationship with God and no place among God's people. No one, said Jesus, comes to the Father except through me. If you reject Jesus, you thereby reject God. And this is the message that they would carry and send. You have to get on God's side here. And you have to get on His side quickly, was their message. We notice their obedience in verse 6. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. The miraculous powers demonstrated by Jesus and His disciples secured the attention of even the highest officials in Palestine. There's great response to the work that they have done. 
We've already seen Jewish officials from Jerusalem have made their way north to sit at the feet of Jesus during his Galilean ministry. So the word has gone out throughout Palestine, even though he's only stationed in the north. But in verses 7 through 9, Luke takes a little stop to consider the widespread confusion that is evidenced in the varied responses to Jesus. Verse 7, particularly, he centers upon Herod. Now Herod the Tetrarch, we find here the confounding of Herod, his heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. This is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. He has been ruling this Galilean, Perean area since about the time of Jesus' birth. We met him back in chapter 3. You'll remember this is the man who imprisoned John the Baptist. And if we are to believe Josephus, the Jewish historian, Herod Antipas imprisoned Josephus because John the Baptist would not stop talking about Herod's adultery. And Herod, according to Josephus, was concerned that so many were listening to John the Baptist that a rebellion was about to begin. And so he put John the Baptist on ice under his feet in the palace dungeon. That's uh, figuratively, but at Machaerus, in fact, at a, at a uh, fortress where Herod did spend some time. And John the Baptist eventually, as you remember, was put to death by this same Herod. This is the man who killed John the Baptist, who is interested in seeing Jesus. Undoubtedly, there is some guilt that is afflicting Herod as he considers here that perhaps John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. In fact, uh, Mark, in his account, makes this clear that this was, in fact, Herod's conclusion. Now, a little investigation would have revealed that Jesus was ministering before John the Baptist was put to death. But Herod was not the only one who drew similarly uninformed conclusions about who Jesus was. And we need to see this, this point through this ninth chapter of Luke. This is a major emphasis. Who is Jesus? People are confused. Verse 8 evidences that. Some thought he was Elijah come back from the dead, others that another prophet of long ago had come back to life. Along with the false conclusions people drew about Jesus, we also see the faithfulness of, this, of the disciples' message here, don't we? Who are they saying? Who are they looking at? They're looking at Jesus. Now they have the wrong message about who He is. But after the disciples went out and healed and preached and ministered, people were not saying, who are the disciples? They were saying, who is Jesus? The disciples were very effective on this account. They realized that the ministry was not about them. The ministry was about the name of Christ. And having gone out and carried out their ministry, people were asking questions about Jesus. Drawing wrong conclusions. As we note again in verse 9, Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then, then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him tried, indicates that he failed, he will succeed completely out of his own doing in chapter 23 when Pilate sends Jesus to see him. And you remember at that time, this is the Herod Antipas that Jesus stands before and says nothing. 
He has nothing to say to Herod. Herod does nothing but mock Jesus and, puts, and adds that in his crime, uh, to his list of crimes. Not only executing John the Baptist for preaching righteousness, but mocking Jesus, who says nothing before him. But until that time in Jerusalem, when Jesus is captured, that is part of Jesus' effort, is to stay out of Herod Antipas's throne room. He does not want to be brought there because he is beginning to understand if he does not fully conceive at this point exactly how he will die. It will not be in northern Israel, in Galilee. It will not be Herod Antipas who has a hand in this. He must die at Mount Moriah. And I think that is clear to him at this point. So he avoids Herod Antipas. In fact, though Luke makes very little of it, during, at this place in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' ministry will now be to the north and to the east of the region of Galilee. He is moving away from Herod's territory. It is getting a little too hot to stay. And it may be this next scene that we see that people realize this, and this is why they are chasing Jesus right out of Galilee, that is, trying to follow him, but taking it right out of the region of Galilee. Verse 10 of Luke 9, When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Having traveled for some time from village to village, what have they been doing? They've been ministering to many sick and diseased people. They've assaulted the demonic realm and cast out demons. They've preached the message of the kingdom of God to people who would listen. They have been guests in a home, many homes apparently, and you put all of that together and it's quite clear that these men are exhausted. They've been on a lengthy journey, a lengthy mission, and they're tired. Now, Jesus knows that time is short. He knows that much is at stake. He knows that he must train them and prepare them. And he knows that the message has been now disseminated throughout Galilee. And so he moves compassionately, and Mark makes this more explicit, to get them out away from the crowd and on their own. According to John, the disciples sail Galilee and beach their boat near Bethsaida. We could see that map again just briefly, uh, just whatever's on there, either one's fine. Um, as you look at the northern uh, edge there of the Lake of Galilee, why don't we have that other one with the larger look of the lake? There you go. You see up at the top uh, of the Lake Capernaum up here, Jesus is going to get in a boat here and make this... The, short journey across the lake, and here is where the line of Galilee ends, and Decapolis picks up, so Herod Antipas's uh, jurisdiction ends right here near Bethsaida, and he is going to go across the lake here with his disciples, and notice the shoreline that uh, runs up here, because he is going to be followed the whole way across by crowds as he tries to get away. Thank you. About a four-mile journey by sea and about an eight-mile journey uh, along the shoreline. So here they are sailing, the disciples and Jesus, to get away and to find seclusion. They are within sight of the shoreline, and as they travel along, you can just see the people running along the shoreline and, and sending the message out through the region 
And there, once again, not the first time this has happened, as the disciples and Jesus come to beach the boat near the town of Bethsaida, there are the crowds awaiting them, ready to receive them and ready to hear more and to be healed. Perhaps during this boat ride, the disciples further debrief on their mission and report to Jesus what they have seen and what has happened. But we pick up there at verse 11 then, seeing that the crowds learned about him leaving and they followed him. So he did what? He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Now let's put ourselves in this spot for a moment. He's tired. Jesus wants to find retreat. And here are all these people waiting. And I think perhaps, and we probably have all experienced this, one of the hardest things to do when you're tired is to be friendly and kind and to go the extra mile and to talk to people. It's a battle. Jesus struggles with that on a human level, but in his grace and his compassion, he welcomes them. Now, couldn't he just spin the boat around out at sea there and head south and get some distance between him and these people and leave them in the dust, so to speak? He could have. He could have done that in one sense, but I think there's a couple of reasons why he really could not. First of all, it is getting very dangerous for Jesus in Galilee. It is going to become more and more difficult, he understands now at this point, to put that boat down anywhere on this lake and to be safe. The opposition is building. I don't know how much the disciples see that. They realize it's there. But it is building, and Jesus knows the opposition is building. Let's remember this, too. Who is it that's trying to see him? Out of curiosity only, Herod Antipas. He's just curious to meet with Jesus. But we remember the last person that Herod was curious to hear from was John the Baptist, and it didn't end very well for him. And Jesus knows the curiosity of Herod can turn into a quagmire. And so he avoids Herod now at all costs till the end of his life. He cannot then just go away. He's heading out of Galilee to Decapolis, and the best place is the northern end of the Lake of Galilee. Although Luke will not mention it, Jesus' ministry from this point will be there in that region. I think there's a second reason why Jesus doesn't just spin the boat and head south, and that is that Jesus is a compassionate servant. He is a compassionate servant. This was not convenient. They needed the rest they deserved the rest, if we want to use that word. But Jesus let the people set the agenda on this occasion because he was humble. And so with good attitude, verse 11, he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. What's he doing? Exactly what the disciples have been doing. Exactly what he has been doing throughout Galilee, performing miracles and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God meeting the people where they were and letting them take his time and the disciples' time. But in this instance, meeting with the people in this way creates a tremendous problem. Verse 12, Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, by the way, others 
other Gospels bring in here, Matthew and Mark, that there's teaching that goes on here in this place. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. A remote place, indicating again that they're outside the town of Bethsaida, and depending on how far outside, out of Herod's jurisdiction, they have some freedom here to meet with this massive number of people. We cannot know the attitude of the disciples here, but let's say the truth. They're telling Jesus what to do, right? Send them home, Jesus. Send them away. We don't have food and lodging here. Send them away. It's time to go. And I would imagine that they are exhausted and that they are ready to find some solace and retreat. And not only that, but Jesus himself has set things up so that that would be the case. It's kind of like vacation has started but there's a call on the phone, and there's some issue to be dealt with before the vacation begin, can begin. And the kids in the family are looking at their watches and saying, come on, let's move, let's move, let's get this started here. That seems to be a little bit of the spirit, perhaps, of the disciples here. We know, you, you've said, Jesus, we're going to get retreat. We've spent all day with these people now. Let's go. Let's send them away. Let's move on. Again, I don't know what attitude exactly that they take here. That's all conjecture. But are they a bit full of themselves, having returned from their own healing and preaching tour? It may be. Whatever the case, we can say this, I think, decidedly. Jesus clearly was not the kind of leader that stifled all discussion. The disciples felt free to interact with him. That did not mean he necessarily listened to them. This would be a great study that came to my mind I haven't done. But I can think of times when the disciples told Jesus what to do, and I can't think of one where he did it. But yet they kept telling him what to do. So there was a freedom there to listen to what people said, and he continued to convey that freedom so that they would tell him what to do, but he'd never do it. And always for a very good reason. Now there may be some times that you'll find where he did, I don't, I don't know that we have that recorded. And perhaps there were some times when, and certainly they were saying things to him all the time, management issues. These people have come to see you. Will you see them? We need to send these people away. We need to make a trip over here. Or we're going to go purchase food. Where would you like to be? And where would you like us to meet you? These kinds of discussions are going on all the time. So it's not unusual. But here is one of those places, again, where they tell Jesus what to do, and he does not yield. Open to the point but he does not, for good reason, listen. And that reason is verse 13. He has something to teach them. And Luke particularly brings this out in this event. This is not all about the people listening. This is about the disciples. And Jesus has a point to make, verse 13. You give them something to eat. You're writing a play on this. You could probably add a line in here. Come again. There's over 5,000 men. You give them something to eat. Now they do a little checking around. They come up with a couple of loaves of bread and some fish. Enough for maybe one lunch. 
What do you mean we give you something? They answer, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. There probably weren't many more women and children, considering the culture of the day and the situation, the travel that it took to get there, the harshness of the environment there. Probably weren't many women and children included, but a substantial number of people in any event. But he says to the disciples, verse 14, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everybody sat down. What is he going to do? Let's stop for a moment and consider first what he has done already. This is a massive crowd. Jesus puts the onus on the disciples to meet them, to feed them, rather. He has led the disciples to understand that they are helpless and they have admitted this. We can't feed these people. And so Jesus leads them to that glad position of attempting something for God that is beyond them. They will have to depend upon His power. They're not going to pull this off any other way. And you know, when it comes to ministry, that's not really a bad place to be. In fact, I'm convinced that it's a place we ought to put ourselves as God leads us from time to time. To put ourselves in a place where we need God to come through. And we've sought to take that position as a church. There's a balance there, undoubtedly. But we've sought to do that over the years as a church, to continue to step forward into a place where God has to meet us and help us. He's not obligated to do so. He's not given us a word to say, this is what you must do. And so we have to pursue cautiously and pursue in faith and in prayer. But it's not a bad thing for a church to be in a place where they don't really know how things are going to take place and how we're going to be able to accomplish what we set out to accomplish. And I think that the biggest aspect of that in our church, in any church's life, ought to be the fact that we don't know how people are going to come to saving faith. We don't carry on conferences here that tell you how to do it precisely so that if you follow the steps, everybody will get saved. Because that's not real anyway. But secondly... It takes away from the focus on the need that we have to depend on the power of God to save the lost soul. Only He can bring people to saving light, and we must depend upon Him wholly to do what only He can do. He puts the disciples in this spot. They cannot feed these people. They will have to depend upon Him. So we've seen what he's done already. We now see what he does with these who are gathered in these groups. Verse 15, the disciples did so. Everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to sit before the people. Gave what? He gave two little loaves and don't even think of a big loaf. Probably just hand-held like a stone-sized loaf of bread with some fish that would have been put inside as a relish to eat like a little sandwich, a little fish, he takes those two loaves, those five loaves, and he takes those two fish, and it is those that he breaks up and passes 
From Jesus' hands, bread is created to feed over 5,000 people. He gave them to the disciples and set, to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Really. 5,000 people fed out of this little food. Well, it's amazing, uh, actually it's quite entertaining to watch the critics line up here and explain how this happened. Those of you who remember how it happened in the VBS play a couple years ago? <laughs> we had a little trick box where we kept pulling out the crumpled paper. You have to talk that John Johnson rigged that up and it, there was an explanation to that miracle on stage here. That was, a, that was a rough VBS year. Trying to create the miracles of Jesus is not easy. But was there something like that going on here? Some sleight of hand, some sort of hidden stash of food? No, say the one critic that I read this week. Here's what happened. Jesus took what the disciples had and he shared it with them. And all of a sudden everybody began to share the food they had with them and everybody was fed. Uh, and I say in response to that, Luke has a really odd way of putting that here, doesn't he? What a strange way to say that. It's just that everybody shared and were kind to each other. And really, I think what these explanations, and there's others like them, that it was, it was not really something that actually happened. It's just something that, that people just began to eat what they already had in some way with a new spirit, or they were filled with some sort of sense of euphoria that meant that their, their hunger went away or something along those lines. You know what that misses? It misses everything Luke is saying, not just in these verses, but everything he's been saying for the last two chapters. And it puts such people right along with the Herods and the like who have all these confused ideas about who Jesus is. Luke is trying to say to us very specifically here that Jesus did what? Who is he? He's Lord over nature, chapter 8. He stilled the raging sea. He is Lord over the supernatural realm. He casts out a legion of demons. He is Lord over disease and death. He heals a woman and He raises a young daughter to life. And here in Luke chapter 9, He creates. And I've read these commentators, and you know what? They don't leave any one of those alone. They have an explanation for each one of them and trip over themselves to explain how the girl wasn't really dead, how the woman wasn't really healed, how Jesus didn't really still the storm, that he just brought peace to their hearts in the middle of the storm, and how he didn't really feed the masses. And what they do is miss everything Luke is jumping up and down to tell us he is Lord of heaven and earth. You can erect your philosophy and say it cannot be and so I rewrite the text or you can say he was who he said he was and there's an empty grave to say you better believe him and Jesus in this moment puts 12 basketfuls, verse 17, in the hands of the disciples, apparently one in each of their hands, 
They were all satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. A basket in each disciple's hand so that they would never forget. He did it. He created food. As this Galilean tour closes, we see in Luke 8 that Jesus is the Lord. He is sovereign Lord. And I'd like you to hold that thought for another week if God gives us life, Lord willing. But let's stop today first and analyze this miracle. A miracle, by the way, that was so important, it is the only one outside the resurrection that is included in all four Gospels. As we know, the four Gospels have different miracles. Some leave one out and others include another. and They, they, they jump around because no one tells the story completely. And in fact, not all four of them combined tell the whole story completely. But this one gets into every one of those accounts. Why? I think first of all because it is the final act of the Galilean tour. This is the grand finale. It is the picture left to linger in the minds of the Galileans. 5,000 plus fellowshipping with Jesus, the great provider, as the sun sets on the Galilean mission. But secondly, because I think it defines who Jesus is, and that is Luke's interest here, and that is Jesus' interest as he prepares his disciples. You must see who I am. This is not a random act. This is an event prefigured in earlier revelation. The Old Testament sets this miracle up for us. And it informs us of its higher meaning. As the gospel writers think back on this event and pen it into their accounts, there is sort of a, you know, hitting on the forehead kind of idea. We should have expected him to feed these people miraculously. This is the fuller fulfillment of what the Old Testament has prepared us for. Those who would like to conclude from this passage that Jesus is kind and compassionate, and that's the storyline, they're on track. Mark makes that observation, but this is only part of the story. What Jesus is showing here is that he is the great and final prophet. I'd like you to keep, if you'd like to stay here, that would maybe be good, but 2 Kings chapter 4 if you'll turn back there, 2 Kings chapter 4, I'd like you to see the stunning parallel in 2 Kings chapter 4 in the ministry of the great prophet Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 4. Second Kings chapter 4 and verse 42. A man from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread, baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked. <laughs> they're going to kill each other, you know. <laughs> Put down this little bit of food. How, I can't put this in front of a hundred men. Notice what Elisha says. Elisha answered, 
Give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. You give them something to eat, Jesus said in Luke 9 and verse 13. And much food was left over. Much out of a little. The miracle of food produced. Is Jesus Elijah? Luke 9, 8. Is he Elisha? 2 Kings 4. No, he is the greater prophet who follows in their train. Elisha prepared us for this event. Jesus stands now as the great prophet and feeds the masses, calling upon his servants to give to them food. A lot out of a little. I think a thoughtful disciple could be expected to see the parallel between Jesus and Elisha. In fact, that is what John sees. Let's go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. In verse 14, we're here among the feeding of the 5,000, the same account, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, what did they say? Surely this guy is the great grocer. Surely this is the prophet. Who is to come into the world? Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Surely this is the prophet who is to come. They saw in this act that Jesus was the prophet. He was the great provider. And I think there's another symbol here or another preparation in the Old Testament text for this event on Jesus' part. And that is what? That is the giving of manna in the desert. This miracle also takes place in the desert or in a remote area. This miracle also involves people who are hungry and without a food source. And we go back to God feeding the Israelites by giving them manna in Exodus 16, in Numbers chapter 11, and we have there God's people without food and God miraculously providing food for them in the desert. Thinking of that context, it is no mistake that John puts this event in the context of Passover. And then I'd like you to look at verses 26 and 27. John chapter 6, John 6, verse 26. This is a day later, but in the same context of him feeding these people, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father, 
has placed his seal of approval. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Still thinking physical bread. Then Jesus declared. Notice verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. You know what Moses did out there in the wilderness so long ago? That is what Jesus has now done in this different wilderness with these people. And the point of it all is not that God can produce bread out of the sky, which he can. The point of it all is that we would see who Jesus really is the bread of life. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the ultimate word, the ultimate message, John himself would say, is whom? It is Jesus. The word becomes flesh, and we eat his flesh. In spirit, we commune with the one who is the bread of life. If you have Jesus, you have life. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have spiritual life. The great kingdom acts of the past are evidence in acts of the same nature performed by Jesus, all of which point us to him as the center of the universe and as the source of our soul's satisfaction. Messiah has come. The kingdom is breaking in. The Messiah is here. And in a similar manner, as we leave this place today, we leave those who know Christ as Savior as followers of Jesus called to participate in this same mission. Our job as disciples is to make Jesus known. We're not endowed with precisely the same powers as the disciples had here. That is not necessary, but we are endowed with the same authority. The same message of salvation in the name of Jesus is the message that we are to get our little broadcasters spreading. As I work through this world, in whatever circle of influence and with whatever people, like that broadcast spreader, I am to disseminate the truth of who Jesus is. I won't do that just like the disciples did that. God does not call every one of us, does not intend for every one of us to go from village to village. But he does intend for us in our village, such as the demoniac that he just healed and sent back to his town, to there in that place where we are planted to disseminate the truth of Jesus Christ the gospel that he has given us to proclaim. This is a high calling, and it is a high privilege. And I wonder as we think on this truth of this mission of Christ's disciples, is there a person on this earth, is there somebody living on this planet who has come to know about Jesus Christ through you? 
Have you communicated to someone else who Jesus is? The truth about him. Are there people who are coming to better understand and to better see who Jesus is because of your witness and your walk? What a privileged calling is ours. You know what we need? We need exactly what these disciples needed. We need the supernatural provision of God to be the witnesses that we should be and to see our words bring the bread of life to starving souls. I can't do that in my power. You can't do it in yours. But God can do it through us as we are faithful to His Word and working to disseminate the Gospel wherever we go. We take the bread of life and distribute that bread freely, trusting God to give people the taste that settles down into their soul and brings them saving life. Have you come to Jesus as the bread of life? Have you come to embrace Him in this way and to know the spiritual satisfaction that He brings? If not, you need to embrace Him now. You need to receive Him as your Savior seeing Him for who He really is and trusting Him as the one who has paid the penalty of your sin and has conquered death in your place. He is, in fact, the bread of life. Without Him, you will starve to death. With Him, there is a feast for your soul. He holds it out to you. You must come and receive it. He wants you to, and He invites you to. Come today and receive the bread of life. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for the reminder of who Jesus is and the life that He has given us. We thank You for the power that is in His name. What a majestic God we serve. And what a privilege is ours to carry out this message to a needy world. I pray that you would bring into our path people who are hungry for spiritual truth. And even if they don't understand that at first, that we might faithfully proclaim Jesus Christ, not in an obnoxious way, not in a condescending way, but as beggars, showing other beggars where the meal is. I pray, God, that you'll grant us this privilege and that your power would go through our words. Lord, we have many in our congregation who share the gospel of Christ, but it seems so little fruit. We thank you for the fruit that is there. And I thank you for the efforts that are made on a daily basis to be faithful to the gospel message. But we pray, dear God, before you as a church, we need your help and your strength. We need you to empower, to give us that strength to proclaim it faithfully and for the Spirit of God to change lives and hearts. We need you, Father. There may be some who 
There really is no one on this earth that knows anything about Jesus because of them, and I pray, God, that you would first help them to analyze where they stand with you themselves, to know they can't really introduce someone that they don't know. But I pray that having come to know and to define their saving relationship with you, that they would become disseminators of the gospel. And I do pray with all my heart for anyone here who does not know you as Savior that you'll bring them to the bread today. And we will rejoice with the angels of heaven as you do. It's through Jesus I pray these things. Amen.